Hi, everybody. I'm part of the team that brings you the Lead from the Heart podcast, and I have some exciting news announcing that Mitel Networks, a global telecommunications firm based in Canada, has become our show's first sponsor, and we couldn't be more excited. Don't compromise on business continuity. Mitel. Mitel can meet all your business communications needs while working from home. Learn more about Mitel and their remote working solutions at mitel.com. That's M-I-T-E-L dot com. Hello, everyone. This is Mark V. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. My guest today is Dory Clark, author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Dory happens to be a truly high achiever, and so it's no surprise that she's been a recent guest on a lot of podcasts lately. But her book and message are so compelling to me that I thought the discussion on our show still could be very powerful and worthwhile. And my goal was to take the conversation in an uncommon direction, and I think we accomplished that. If you're like me, your day-to-day responsibilities often are so numerous and time urgent, you find yourself unable to focus on your long-term dreams and aspirations. And we also live in this world that's mired in short-term thinking, short-term gratification, and short attention spans, all of which tend to take us off track. So how can we break out of this endless cycle and create the kind of interesting, meaningful lives that we all seek? Well, modern day society tends to push us towards doing what's easy, what's guaranteed, or what looks glamorous in the moment. But Dory argues, as you're about to hear, for a different path. It's about doing small things over time to achieve our goals and being willing to keep at them, even when they seem pointless, boring, or hard. Realistically, it's never an overnight process, but the long-term payoff is immense. To finally break out of the frenetic day-to-day routine and transform your life and career only comes from holding on to a long-term approach to fulfilling your dreams. Dory, again, as you're about to hear, is smart, thoughtful, funny, and is the living embodiment of someone willing to employ the disciplines that produce long-term success. And we're going to dig into what those are right now. So let me welcome you to the podcast, Dory Clark. Mark, thanks so much. Great to be here with you. Well, this is exciting for me. And you're a very popular person these days, and you're doing lots of interviews with your book, Making the Wall Street Journal's bestseller list and all. And so my hope is to have a conversation that takes us well off the beaten path. So I'm hoping we can sort of start with a mindset of let's talk about stuff that you're not talking about elsewhere. So and obviously covering all the big ideas from your book. So is that good? That sounds amazing. I love it. All right. Wonderful. So So let's start with you personally. You have so many interests and such an unusual background, starting with the fact that you left high school at 14 years old, and apparently, I'm guessing, your North Carolina home, to attend a program for gifted students at Mary Baldwin College in Virginia. And then you attended Smith College, graduating magnum cum laude. Congratulations. Followed by earning a master's in theological studies from Harvard's Divinity School. So... I just want to start by asking you to tell us about how all of these experiences connected and shaped who you are and your worldview. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you. I mostly grew up in this small town and it did not suit me at all. (laughs) I Mm -hmm. felt like I wanted to be able to get out and do exciting things and kind of get on with my life. And so as soon as I could finagle away to 
you know, a societally acceptable way <laughs> to get out, which going to college early qualified, I did it. And I was lucky that my mom was supportive and was okay with me leaving home early. And I was really interested in activism and advocacy and answering big questions about life and the meaning of life. And so I, I was a philosophy major. And then, as you mentioned, I went on to graduate school in theology because I really was interested in understanding how people make meaning for themselves, understanding how people thought about life, mm. and uh, hopefully being able to take action to to make things better, you know, just to be a perfectly idealistic teenager. So tell me at 14 years old, where were you in terms of your understanding of the world? Like, were you really that smart that you were taking your own long game and thinking, this is where I want to go? Like, did you see a vision for yourself at 14? It's pretty amazing, honestly, to extricate yourself from your family, you know, your mom and say adios and I'm going to a different state and I'm going to a different school and I'm just going to completely recreate my life. And I'm, based on the fact that you went off to Harvard and to Smith, you never went back to North Carolina, at least not to live permanently, I'm saying. And that's like, all of this is amazing to me. So where were you and have you always been this person? Well, I'm, I'm not sure if it says something good about me or something bad about me. But No, it says something really good about you. <laughs> well, thank you. As I think about it, I feel like when I was 13, 14, I was basically the exact same person I am now. I think, mm -hmm. you know, I like to think that I've sort of matured in certain ways. I'm more patient. That actually ties into <laughs> writing a book about playing the long game because I was pretty impatient back then and I really had to work on that. But yeah, I cared about the same things. I feel like I, I had a roughly similarly formed personality. So yeah, I think when I was 14, I was just ready to get going. When I went to college, the most common thing that parents or that older people would say to me and to my classmates, because there, you know, there's a cohort at Mary Baldwin of younger students, and we would constantly get barraged with these people saying, oh, but aren't you so sad you're missing your prom? And we, <laughs> I include myself in this, we all thought this was literally the most preposterous thing you could ever say to someone like, oh, the sum of your high school experience is a dance for one night. Like it just seemed ridiculous. I was getting ready to just, I wanted to expedite my life. I wanted to get on with it. High school felt like a waste of time. I wanted to move forward and be able to do actual things that add meaning, not stick around to go to some heteronormative event. <laughs> but yeah, well, I get that. But I also get that the gap between your level of consciousness at 14, 15, 16, and whoever asked you about, you know, prom is like the most important thing of high school. And you're like, no, man, I'm, I'm just here to learn. <laughs> I'm trying to get someplace. And the prom is just an interruption, yeah. right? So I hope you understand that you have a very uncommon life experience. That's kind of where I was going with this. It's, and it's remarkable. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. I I certainly don't think of myself, and I am not, you know, let's be really clear. This is not false modesty. It's not like, oh, she's so smart. You know, I mean, I think I was mature. I think that was 
that was that's where I'm going. That's where, yeah. I mean, your intellect speaks for itself, but that's where I'm going is the level of maturity, the level of vision, the self awareness that you had for who you were and who you wanted to become and the steps that were necessary in order to get there. You had a very clear understanding of that very early on. And that's really what I wanted to punctuate. So let's get to the long game. Your central premise is that most of us get so focused on our day-to-day challenges and obligations that we ignore or we feel we don't have time for the very important work of thinking about our future lives. And as you say in your book, none of us can predict the future, but we can certainly identify the goals we want to head toward or potential vulnerabilities we want to avoid. So while the benefits of this kind of planning seem obvious, tell us what tends to sidetrack us from long-term thinking. Well, the problem is that there's often a lot of factors that are moving us at cross purposes. For me, the interesting part, part of why I wanted to dive into this question, is it's not like there's a lot of debate about long-term thinking being a good thing. There's not. I mean, pretty much everyone's like, yes, that's important. We should do that. And yet, despite that consensus, that almost unanimous consensus, so few people actually do it. So few people actually are able or force themselves to make time to do it. So I wanted to understand that gap. You know, like, what is the delta there? And what I realized is we all pay a lot of lip service to wanting to be less busy. I think this is kind of the first piece, Mm -hmm. right? It's just in a literal sense, people will often say, well, I'm too busy to do long-term thinking. And they're not wrong. They are too busy. But the problem is that we are the ones making those choices. We are the ones who are setting up those conditions. And so it becomes this multifaceted quest to understand what's going on because it's not just that we have too many emails or too many meetings. We do, we do. But also, if you excavate a little further, it turns out that there are some more hidden and therefore more pernicious things happening. One of them being that for many of us, we derive a certain sense of status from our busyness that we are often loath to give up. Another is that we sometimes hide behind busyness as a way of not having to ask ourselves or to answer uncomfortable questions. And those can be very powerful lures that keep us from actually really even being able to begin the process of long-term thinking. So why do we pride ourselves in the I'm so busy language? Like, I know you're saying that we derive some degree of status from that, but and you use the word pernicious. It seems pernicious throughout society. Like, if you talk to people and go, how are you doing? That language, I'm so busy, comes up a lot. And we go, oh, yeah, like me too. And so we're kind of like validating each other that, you know, we got a lot going on in our lives. And so, you know, we're living the life. But you're really challenging that and saying, no, you got to step back and say, what are you doing with that time? And is it really moving you forward? Or are you just occupying yourself just to feel busy? Is that your conclusion? Yeah, it, it becomes a form of humble bragging, essentially. That, uh, you know, Mm. it's a societally accepted way of saying, you know, oh, I, you know, you can't literally say, I am so popular. Oh, my God, I am so in demand. But you're kind of saying that you're kind of telegraphing that if you are saying, oh, wow, I'm so busy. I'm crazy busy. And, uh, you know, it's on one hand, it's poor me. And on the other, it's like, hey, I'm a baller. So uh, that, that's right. hard. Right. So how do you navigate it? 
like, what's your advice for people listening in here when they're like, if they're honestly acknowledging she's talking about me, what's your advice? Like, how do you navigate around that and take a step back and not take a sense of pride in the fact that you're not occupied every single minute? <laughs> well, I think, I think part of it really is a, a question of reframing, right? I think step one is stopping ourselves from doing it. If that has become your default, you know, we get into these patterns. How are you doing? Oh, I'm so busy. If that is something that you are saying regularly, it's actually probably not a healthy behavioral pattern, right? I mean, first of all, it's not, it's just not that useful. Like, is that really the only thing you want people to know about you? Like, maybe we can come up with a better answer. But also understanding, you know, just sort of breaking it down. There's a section in the long game where I, I interviewed a guy named Derek Sivers, who's an entrepreneur, and he raised the point, which I think is, is really true. He said, you know, we're never going to get out of this if we don't somehow shift the mindset around who we admire, we need to stop lionizing the people that are always racing around. And instead, he raised the point. He said, you know, look, I looked at people and there were some people that were so successful, you know, so wealthy and on top of things and, you know, really considered the best at what they do. And some of them were running around with chickens like their heads cut off, but some of them weren't. And the ones that weren't actually were in control of their time. They were the people who would actually listen to you. They'd talk to you. They didn't seem like they were at somebody else's mercy. And he said, I looked at that and, and decided that's what I want to be like. And I think that that is really astute, that we have to change what we are ourselves aspiring toward. So while I was reading your book, I mean, I could feel into you. And I, what I got is you're one of the most ambitious people that I know, like, now that I know you, right? But I mean, through your book, I just picked up like, this is somebody who's just like always got something going, always driving, always accomplishing and doing really good things in the process. I mean, this whole, your interest in musicals and writing musicals, which is off topic, but it speaks to your interest in getting involved in a lot of different things in a lot of different areas. So in relationship to that, how have you taken a step back at the same time as feeling like you're you're making things happen. Yeah, well, broadly speaking, Mark, I'd say the way that I think about this is actually something that I talk about in the long game. There's a concept that I share called thinking in waves. And the way that I think about it really is we have to think in waves. We have to think in seasons because if you're actually going to be successful, it's true. You can't get away with just having a languid pace in life, right? Like it's not about sauntering yeah. along, mm -hmm. but also it's equally true that it's not about living your entire life in a sprint because that's the way that you get burned out. That's the way you collapse. You have to get good at understanding how to toggle back and forth between sprints and marathons. You have to know what phase you're in. You can't get away with one or the other. It has to be both. And so the way that I think about it is if you're going to be ambitious or successful, of course, there's plenty of sprinting involved, but the human body is not a machine. And so we have to be smart about understanding when it's sending us signals and when it's time for us to create breaks in the action for restoration. And that's really how I try to think about it. How'd you learn that? And what are some of the techniques you've used? Like, what do you do to 
keep your balance and to give yourself time to reflect? Well, I mean, at a basic level on, on kind of an ongoing sense, I'm very focused about sleep for sure. That is one thing that I am not going to compromise on. I think it's so weird to me that some people try to cut that out. I would rather cut out almost anything else but sleep Mm -hmm. because everything else is going to be compromised if you don't have that as a pillar. But that's sort of on a day-to-day basis or a weekly basis. If we're zooming out further, I will say, for instance, looking at the calendar for 2021, literally like over the Christmas holidays of 2020, I was looking at the calendar for 2021. I'm like, you know, this is going to be a hard year. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, leaving aside COVID, it's going to be a hard year because there was a online course and launch that I was engaged in quite heavily through the first half of the year. And I was, you know, simultaneously finishing up my book, teeing up promotion for my book. Things got very intense starting in the summer around my book launch through the early fall. So I knew there was not going to be a lot of rest during that period. It was going to be an entire year where I had to push really hard. But I also decided, and this was over a year out, that the way I would both keep myself sane and compensate for that is that I would give myself a sabbatical, or at least what I'm calling a quasi-sabbatical, in January and February of 2022. And so now that we're getting closer, this is still happening. I am not removing my coaching clients because just changing that around, honestly, is like a little too much work. But for literally everything else, podcasts, networking, voluntary things, I'm not doing it for two months. I'm just taking a break from it because... That was how I realized that I could toggle back and forth between the heads down mode that I had been in pretty much most of 2021 and be able to reset and have a little heads up time to counterbalance it. So you're not seduced into thinking, well, I got through the year and I've got a lot of momentum, so I'm going to give up that pledge I made to myself? Yeah, I'm, I'm not tempted. I mean, I thought about it before how to plan it out. I mean, I think it's true. It's easy, and I've certainly done this sometimes, to abandon a book launch too soon. You know, it can't just be a month. But my book came out September 21st. My plan was to promote it heavily through the end of the year. So I would be able to, you know, September, October, November, December, you know, give it like three to four months of pretty sustained love. And at that point, it all becomes long tail. You don't want to take forever off. But if you take a couple of months off and then you return to the sort of slower drumbeat of promotion, I don't think at that point in its arc that it's going to be that disadvantageous. That's well said. Glad I asked the question. You know, when we're younger, I think we really can't conceive of how fast 10 or even 20 years flies by. And so when we think about getting a degree or learning a new skill or like you writing a book, we often defeat ourselves by thinking about how long it will take to accomplish it. And then in light of this, tell us the mindset that says that if we're methodical, if we're persistent, and if we take small, deliberate steps, we can arrive where we want to get to. And then while you're at it, tell us how our everyday small actions compound into something great, because this is something you really emphasize in your book. Yeah, well, I think the metaphor here is sort of the metaphor of personal finance, 
because it's always so mind blowing sometimes when you go to those like wealth calculators and it's like, okay, you know, a hundred dollars invested starting when you're 25 every month. And like, all of a sudden you look at it and it's like, oh my God, it's like $50 million by the time you're 65. Mm -hmm. Like how did that happen? It just seems crazy. It doesn't even make any logical sense. But that is, in fact, how compounding works is you get these like preposterous numbers on the other end that just don't even make any sense with the limitations of the human brain, basically. And similarly, we have to understand that actions compound the way that money does. And so getting clear on small, discrete steps that we can be taking on a consistent basis is actually really quite powerful. And I've seen this in many cases in my own life and in the lives of people who have joined my recognized expert community. For instance, there's you know been more than 600 people who have been part of this online course and community that I run. So you get to see a real cross-section of how this seems to work. But the issue that I've seen time and again, and part of why I wanted to write the long game was in response to this, is that for a while, for the first chunk of time, it seems almost like nothing's happening. And this is why it's so frustrating for people. They're trying to make progress in their careers. And it's just like, oh my gosh, I'm doing all this work and nothing's happening. And it's nothing, 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 nothing. And then you reach a certain point and it actually explodes. It explodes exponentially. And that's where you know all of the sort of silly, you know, outside narrative about overnight success comes from is because the world has been looking at it and they see nothing, nothing, nothing. Oh, they just blew up. But actually, it is very much akin to a process in the growth of exponential technologies that Peter Diamandis and Stephen Kotler have written about, which they call the deception phase. And it's basically like, look, all along, this has been growing at an exponential rate, but it started out so small, you couldn't even perceive it. But, you know, it's growing, growing, growing. It's building up a competitive advantage when nobody else is even looking. And then at a certain point, it hits a tripwire. It crosses, as they say, the round number barrier. And then the growth becomes visible to the naked eye. And everybody says, oh, my God, what's happening? This is crazy. But it's the pattern that's been there all along. You just have to keep at it long enough for it to do its magic. I'm curious, Mark, have you found this to be true in your own life? And if so... How does all this play out for you? Wow, that's a prescient question because I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, do I insert this? Like ordinarily it just comes to me and I just do it. But I'm so intrigued by your story that I was going to sidetrack it. So let me point out first that I, you made me think of Holland Taylor, who's you're probably very familiar with who she is, but she won an Emmy when she was in her 50s. And she said, you know, I'm an overnight success after 30 years of acting. And so, you know, it sizes up this long game. But to your question, and it's very thoughtful, very few people ask me questions like this on my own podcast, but it's really relevant. And it's one of the reasons why I was excited to have you on. I wrote a book 10 years ago, literally 10 years ago. And, and I'm just going to use it in the vernacular because this is the truth. When it came out, it's called Lead from the Heart. And I paid a marketing consultant. I was coming out of a corporate environment, no platform. Nobody knew who I was. I just had the book. And her idea was that we need to help you with a strategy. So she saw the title of my book. She came back and she goes, and I apologize to my audience, but this is what she said. She goes, you're going to fucking fail if you continue to use the expression lead from the heart. <laughs> and 
So she goes, never use it again. Call it killer engagement. But there's science to this. Like, I know what I'm talking about is absolute truth. And so she forced me into the long game. She forced me into seeing that if you call it killer engagement, Dory, then you're going to have the hurdles fall down. And if you continue to use the language that the world isn't receptive to right now, then you're going to trip and fall over all of them unnecessarily. So it's your choice. Well, the choice that I made was to own it. Like, this is the language because there's science that validates this. It's my own experience. And so I'm just going to have to wait it out. To your book and to your point, Dory, it took 10 years. Yeah. And so I just spent the summer rewriting. I wrote a whole second edition that comes out next year. And the world, thanks to COVID largely, is finally realizing that heart isn't such a bad idea. Thank you again for asking the question. Now, let me come back to you. How do you get through the deception phase? Because there were many times where I was like, should I have just gone with the killer engagement? Because there's still a lot of resistance to this. Or should I just go back for my own successful career and just give this thing up? I mean, there were a lot of dark days and nights where I thought, you know what, I'm not going to persist. Yeah, it, it is so common because it feels very rational. I think we can tell ourselves it's very rational to give up at a certain point because it feels like you're in this dark tunnel. You've, you've tried it. You've given it a college try and nope, not working. Exactly. So what I've seen so often is the thing that we are typically most afraid of is being the idiot who pursues the losing cause too long. Right. I told you so. Yep. The interesting thing is that what actually I have found with my clients and the people I advise is far more common. It's not that. It's that we are actually, despite what we think and what we tell ourselves, we are actually the person who sometimes tends to give up too soon on something that should be pursued longer. And you ask an important question, which is how do we know the difference? And I think there's a few ways that we can begin to understand this. Partly, of course, it is crucial to have a group of trusted advisors around you because in the moment, mm -hmm. it's very hard to be rational about your baby. I mean, none of us is very good at this when we are in the thick of it. But if you have a group of people whose judgment you trust, not just in general, not just that they like you, that they care about you, but that they know your field and they have intelligent insights about your field, then you can begin to get a better sense from them about whether they think that your concept really does have legs or not. That's part of it. The other part of it is about scoping out beforehand what you think is likely to happen. Because oftentimes we, we skip this step somehow. We assume it's not important or we just don't even think about it. And this is a really big problem. Because if you think in the back of your head that something is going to take three months and you're at it month eight and it's still not showing any signs of traction, it makes all the sense in the world for you to quit. But the interesting thing is if you have not properly vetted it, you might not know that the average person takes a year to do whatever it is. Exactly. So having that knowledge is really, really important up front so that you are not making erroneous judgments that you don't even perceive. I think that's one of the important parts of your book, because it's really difficult to make that assessment. 
Like, how do I know it's going to be three months? How do I know it's going to be? Look, you know, somebody said to me, if you knew it was going to take 10 years to really hit, would you have done it? (laughs) So I go, well, probably not. You know, that's such a huge horizon. But because I've taken those 10 years, this message that I'm about is like, I'm it. Like I've embodied this, like I've lived this and I've researched it and I know it better. So it's almost as if the universe said, you know, for you to have what you have, we want you to take longer. And so we're going to like delay this for you. But that's my understanding now, Dory. There were in the three month or the five months or the eight months, that's or the one year and two year where there was just a lot of resistance to this. I was supposed to speak to Jeff Bezos and his executive team, and they canceled at the last minute because one of the senior leaders said, lead from the heart. We need some guy that can drive performance. Right. Completely missing the point, missing the whole idea. But those are the kinds of setbacks. And so... How do you navigate those dark days? Have you ever had them? Have you ever had like where you just thought, I'm not getting where I want to get to? And, you know, what am I going to do to maneuver this? Especially if you believe that what you were doing at the moment and the pursuit that you had was the right one? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, you know, in fact, in the long game, I have a a whole chapter toward the end where I talk about rethinking failure. And I begin the chapter by talking about some of my own travails. It is relatively easy for people later on in their career, you know, when someone says, well, talk about a failure you've had, you know, to sort of go back to the like, oh, well, when I was 16, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, okay, like, yes, you've, you've gotten through that. That's great. But there often is a misconception that once you've reached a certain level of success, like, oh, well, now it's all smooth sailing. Right. And of course, this is not true. We always have problems. It's just a question of the problems are changing or hopefully the problems get upgraded. But in my case, in the long game, I write about these five goals that I had for myself in 2019. And they were all, you know, they're sort of big goals or sort of stretch goals, mm-hmm. but they were all plausible. There was nothing in there that was like crazy. They all could have worked out. But as it happened, as the year progressed, one by one, one by one, they kept not happening. They kept, you know, sort of blowing up. So there was a book that I was going to be writing with a prestigious author, you know, sort of co-writing together. Nope, that blew up. I was courted by a very prominent media outlet that was auditioning me to be a columnist. Nope, they decided they didn't want me, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so finally, we get literally to the end of the year. It's late November. And finally, the last one pans out for me. But everything up to that point throughout the year had just blown up rather spectacularly. So at a certain point, you really are like, oh, my God, you know, like, what's going on? Is is any of this going to work? But I think for me, what is helpful, and hopefully for other people as well, is understanding. I, I found this very empowering in its own way. I have a colleague named Jeffrey Pfeffer, who is a professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a book a number of years ago called Power, or why some people have it and others don't. And a point that he raised is that there's always going to be these sort of outlying situations. But in general, if you are a smart person, you know, competent person, you might find yourself sometimes in a situation where no matter what you do, it's the wrong situation. Your talents aren't going to be appreciated. You know, it's just not clicking. But he said, statistically, the issue is, is that you need to give yourself more opportunities. In this one situation, it's not working. They don't see it. But, you know, maybe if you're good enough, 95 out of 100 times, 
people will be excited. They will want you on the team. They will value your contribution. So don't let yourself get down if you accidentally find yourself in one of the five out of 100 situations where people are like, yeah, you suck. Uh, So you just have to, you know, as I put it, you have to give yourself at bats. And so, you know, getting knocked down four times in a row is not fun. But I really just try to maintain a perspective like, look, you know, I know that I have something to offer. And if these folks don't agree, you know, F them. (laughs) Okay, that's very powerful mindset, right? And because of the question I was going to ask you in your coaching, you just described the whole year where like, that's not happening. This isn't happening. This isn't happening. At some point you go, man, this is like a whole year of like not succeeding. So you could have gone into a, a belief system that says like, Maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was, right? The universe of the world isn't rewarding me for any of these things. So I'm not getting any of these goals met, but that wasn't where you were. And then I'm wondering, in terms of the people that you coach, have you found that it's human nature for us to think that we're the only ones that struggle to succeed? Like it's easy for other people, but I'm not making it happen. So I'm not as good as other people. Do we do that to ourselves erroneously? Well, I think that there's a couple of things that are at play because what I try to surface if I'm working with clients is usually there's kind of two competing narratives, right? Because on one hand, people might say, oh my gosh, this is terrible. I've been turned down for this. Maybe I'm not good enough. On the other hand, they look around and they see some of the other people who are succeeding, quote unquote, you know, who are getting published or who are getting the gigs or who are, you know, getting the keynote slots, whatever the metric is. And they look at them and, you know, these people like barely know what they're doing. They're not, they're not any good. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh my God, this Mm -hmm. is so pathetic. I could do so much better. And I'm like, okay, well, how are both of these things true? Like, you know, like, like pick one, pick a narrative here. Like if you are seeing Mm -hmm. people that you objectively feel like are idiots (laughs) and they are succeeding, guess what? You don't have to be the best in the world. This is how I think about myself in musical theater. It's not that you have to be the best in the world. In fact, you probably aren't. There's 7 billion people. I'm sure we can all find someone who is better, quote unquote. But are you better than the guy who is, you know, making it? Yes. Okay, then you can make it too. Like, let's not be precious. Like, I think it's like angels on a head of a pin if we're trying to figure out, well, who's better and what's the gradation of better? The question is, are you good enough? And the answer is yes, of course you're good enough. So like, let's get on with it. You can make it too is a very powerful insight. You know, sometimes in that construct that you just created, we go, well, they're the ones getting all the X, whatever it is, the gigs, the speaking, whatever, the outcome that I want. And we think, well, then if they're getting them, then I can't get them. And you're saying, no, if you think you're as talented and credible as those people, just because they're getting it doesn't mean you can't. Just keep at it right? That's a very powerful way of approaching failure or setbacks or what you call deception phase, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, my mantra is blame out, not in. (laughs) Too many people are just like, oh, you know, they must be right. Well, you know, who says they, whoever the they is, might, you know, must be right. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, who, who appointed them? Oftentimes, the folks who are gatekeepers are not necessarily qualified even (laughs) to be gatekeepers. And so it is a dereliction of duty to accept without judgment or question their opinion. Instead, I think it's far healthier, you know, unless up till and unless, you know, a hundred people tell you it's not good enough, 
I think it's really irresponsible to accept their judgment. We should be inclined instead to assume all the things, right? Like, oh, maybe they're too busy and they didn't respond to me because their inbox is too crowded. Maybe they had a bad day. Maybe they just have different tastes and they like people who do it this way, but my style is to do it that way. And there's a million reasons besides I'm not good enough that you might not be getting traction. And it all implies that you should just keep going and continue looking for a space in which you will be more successful. It reminds me of something you said a few minutes ago about having a group of people that are truth tellers that can give you feedback in terms of whether or not you should persist or not persist or adjust here and not adjust here, right? Keep doing what you're doing, make some adjustments. This may not be working, whatever the feedback is, but getting it from trusted people. I will tell you that, you know, at some point I have to throw a parade for the certain people in my life who said, no, what you're doing is this is who you are. This is what you're here for. Don't give up on this. Don't give up. And so having people that could be your chief encourager, as long as they understand what your mission is, is a big part of persisting. That's what you found, right? Yeah, yeah, right on. That's great. So another common experience, especially when we're young, is that we're not exactly sure of our big goals or what our purpose should be. I think this is true for a lot of people. And you have this great advice from, I'm not sure who she is, but Marion Stoddart, who says, whenever you have a choice of what to do, choose the more interesting path. So this is sort of the way to find your destiny, your meaning, your purpose, I suppose, is to just keep choosing the path that seems the most interesting in in any given moment, and that will lead you there? Is that the conclusion? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think in our culture, we tend to have a bifurcated view of this, much like we have a bifurcated view of almost everything. But it seems like the narrative has been set up that it's either, oh, either chase the money or follow your passion. Pick one. And I feel like that is not super helpful. I mean, obviously, chase the money has limitations because that's how we get a lot of people ending up in jobs that they're pretty miserable in. But also follow your passion is somewhat problematic because we have, I think, a little bit of an epidemic of what I call passion shaming, which is if people don't have a passion or they don't know what their passion is, we often, you know, sort of feel bad, right? It's like, oh, how sad for you that you don't know what your passion is. Oh, that's terrible. Well, I guess, Mm -hmm. I guess you'll just have to go off and find your passion. And then it becomes this thing where it's like, oh, you can't take any action. You can't do anything until you know what it is, which of course is the worst way to discover what you feel passionate about is just sort of sitting there wondering what my passion is. I prefer to lower the bar and basically, you know, say, I think Marion Stoddard, it was actually advice her mother gave to her, parting advice on the way when she was off to college. This idea of just choose the more interesting path, I feel like is a much more humane and manageable way to identify this. It means that number one, you're never going to end up with some career that you hate because you do at least find it interesting. But it's not like this holy grail search for a passion. It's just, you know what? If it's interesting, keep doing it. If it's not, well, you can pivot. And I think lowering the stakes lowers the pressure Mm. and makes it a lot more likely that we're going to end up on a path that is meaningful and successful for us. Every step of the way, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. So- Tell us why you believe character is the most essential quality of a long-term thinker. Yeah, well, I think 
ultimately, when you are engaged in long-term thinking, and of course, the actions that one must undertake to achieve long-term outcomes, one of the most challenging things is you're making a guess, right? You're placing a bet. The outcome is not guaranteed. You have to have faith in the process. One of the studies that I allude to in the book that any reader of uh, business literature, pop business literature will be familiar with is the famous marshmallow study by Walter Michel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's like, okay, one marshmallow now or two if you wait. Well, there's so many people in the world that are looking for the guaranteed thing. They will grab the one marshmallow. But we know that in the short term, it's almost impossible to accomplish really meaningful, broad and wide goals, right? There's only so much you can do if you're just trying to grab for it now. To have a huge impact, you do need time, you do need effort, but it's not guaranteed. And so I think a question of character comes in, are you the kind of person that is willing to live with that uncertainty that you can only control what you can control, you're gonna do a good job with the process, You don't know if it's going to work, but you're willing to do it anyway because it's that important. If you are, I think those kinds of people should be rewarded. I do too. So that's your definition of character then. I think it's certainly a big facet of it, yes. I think that's fantastic. You know, I was just reading in the paper that the new Gallup poll showed the popularity and approval of American President Joe Biden had fallen from the previous week. And it it just made me think how unreasonable it is to judge anyone's performance on a week to week basis. And then it had me thinking, you know, like a lot of us have the same tendency to judge all of our own brushstrokes rather than, you know, see the big picture, no pun intended, (laughs) rather than evaluate our success over time. So judging our progress and success on a day-to-day basis just strikes me as being incredibly counterproductive, even though I know we all do it. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's true. It's often the case that if we look at anything too frequently, too closely, it can lead to pathology. Pathology. Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of unfair. Let's take a look every three months and see how people are doing in terms of just evaluating. But if we're judging every brushstroke with people, particularly ourselves, we're just going to end up in the ditch. And that's one of my big takeaways from your book. Everyone, let's take a very quick break here, and we're going to return with the heartbeat round. Hi, everyone. If you didn't know, at the time this episode was produced, the Lead from the Heart podcast has an audience in 156 countries around the world. Think about that and how universally we're all seeking insight on how to more humanely and successfully manage people in our workplaces. Our new sponsor, Mitel Networks, makes communication like ours possible. And they're pleased to introduce themselves to you wherever in the world you may live. To learn more about Mitel, visit Mitel.com. That's M-I-T-E-L dot com. And thanks again for listening. Dory, we have a tradition on the podcast where we take a brief break from our conversation and we ask our guests a series of quick answer questions. And it's all with the intention of learning a little bit more about them personally. In this case, we're talking about you, your interests, your influences, and your life philosophy. And we call this the heartbeat round. So now, of course, it's your turn. And when you hear each question, please give us your best instinctive answer and respond to each one in a heartbeat. Are you ready to go? I'm ready to go. All right. Wonderful. Something important that you specifically learned in the process of writing your book. Something that I learned in the process of writing my book is that 
it feels very weird to write about yourself and your own experience and that you have to kind of learn how to get comfortable with that. But those are usually the parts that people like the best. <laughs> your favorite musical of all time. My favorite musical is Rent. The quality you admire most in other people. I think generosity. If you have a quick one, tell me your favorite joke. <laughs> My favorite joke is, <laughs> what do you call an agnostic dyslexic insomniac? <laughs> I don't know. Someone who stays up all night wondering if there is a dog. <laughs> all right. Now, the reason I put this question in there for the audience is because you did some stand-up comedy. So that was, just was a homage to your experience doing that. And so That's right. I can't take credit for that one. That was from my childhood. <laughs> your synonym for the word heart. Core. One subject you believe all workplace managers would be wise to bone up on? Delegation. <laughs> Good. What drives you to achieve? I hmm, manifest destiny. <laughs> really? Okay. <laughs> Go west, young woman. The trait that destroys the most leadership careers? Mm, I think the trait that destroys the most leadership careers is not communicating effectively. Either sometimes people tend to over-communicate, meaning sometimes too much or too angry. Sometimes people tend to under-communicate, which is just not enough information or too passive. But I think that communication issues are usually at the root of a lot of managerial problems. A book you wish everyone in the world would read, or at least our audience. I have long been a fan and believer of Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion. Mm. Mm -hmm. Great. The one thing you love most about living in New York City? Uh, it's got to be Broadway, obviously. <laughs> right? Set up. A prediction about the future you're pretty sure will come true. Oh, I think that cryptocurrency is probably going to continue to be a thing. I've been wondering about that. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Right now, what I am working on is, well, in a very literal sense, I have been taking ping pong lessons. And in a metaphorical sense, uh, coming off the book launch, I am looking at the skill of protecting my calendar better. <laughs> All right. And your favorite word or a word you find yourself frequently using? Over-index. Over-index. We'll have to look that up. Dory, these are really interesting answers. And you're a very interesting person, by the way. I just have to point that out. It makes it really delightful to have a conversation with you. So thanks for going through the heartbeat round questions with me. There's so much in your book, Dory, and I want to make sure that I just sort of hand over the floor to you. And I, I wanted to have a conversation that was unique to all the other conversations you've been having selfishly. And I think we've accomplished that thanks to you. But is there something that you really want our listeners to take away from this? Something really, really important that might intrigue them to read the book, by the way. Yeah, thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Well, I will just say that we need to, this is not something that gets overtly drilled into us. This is very much implicit. But if we are going to actually have the space, the mental space to be long-term thinkers, we have to constantly be upgrading our standards in terms of what we are going to say yes to and what we need to spend our time on. And no one is going to do this for us. They're not going to tell us to do it. They're not going to make us do it. 
we have to do it for ourselves. And enforcing those boundaries can be really challenging, but it is necessary to be able to give us the space to do what we need to. So I think that is a a starting point. And I'll just mention too, that for people who are interested in some of these concepts and how to better apply the principles of strategic thinking to their own careers and their own lives, there's a free resource, which is the Long Game Strategic Thinking Self-Assessment. And folks can download that for free at doryclark.com slash the long game. That's wonderful. Wonderful way to end it. And on behalf of my audience, they don't know this because they haven't read the book or many of them probably haven't, but I have. And it's really well written and it's very well thought out. And and no surprise to me why it's such a success. But on behalf of my audience, I just want to say thank you, Dory. I've been really looking forward to this conversation and you made it wonderful. Thank you so much, Mark. Great talking with you. Thank you so much. Before we go, many listeners have asked us to share the name of our theme song. So here goes. It's called Take the A-Train, written in 1939 by Billy Strayhorn. It was a signature song for famous band leader Duke Ellington and is performed here by the extraordinary BBC Big Band Orchestra. I want to thank my team, including Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, and Eric Oz, and a special thanks for this episode to my friend Felicia Sinousis at the Harvard Business Review Press. I also want to thank all of you for introducing our show to your friends and colleagues. We are so grateful when you do this for us. And I, of course, leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. 